0: Look at a particular story let's uh let's start with a question. What are the gospels? It's your turn in there, John seven the good news okay that's the definition of the word gospel, right? Good news. okay, what do we mean when we say the gospels okay okay. You're going, you're going very deep, and I'm just asking surface. <laughs> Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Good, because we're getting to where you're going, John. <laughs> All right. So uh, the gospels are normally uh, those stories that tell us about the saving work of Jesus, right? His work on earth, his life on earth, and uh, they tell us about his birth, right, and his uh, ministry. Uh, I think all four of them talk about his baptism. They talk about miracles. Uh, does anybody know, I think we mentioned this a couple weeks ago, the only miracle besides the resurrection that's recorded in all four Gospels? The feeding of the 5,000, yeah. Isn't that kind of amazing? Of all the miracles, there's only there's only one outside the resurrection that appears in all four Gospels, many of them appear in all three or a couple, but that's the uh, miracle that appears in all four besides, of course, the great miracle of the resurrection. Um, also, um, what, what are the other things the Gospels include besides miracles? What's that? Parables. Okay, parables. And if we were to put parables into a big category, what would that be? The, teach, the teachings of Jesus, right? So we get Jesus' teachings there. Um, we hear about his relationship to the Father. We hear about his relationships to sinful pe- people, which is everybody he's ever touched or talked to. Have you thought about that? Everybody, Jesus is always the holiest one in the room no matter where he's at. He, he knows more about the Bible. He knows more about God than anyone else in the room at any time. And I think that's that's fascinating. Okay, so um, everyone Jesus, anyone Jesus ever met in his earthly life was more or less sinful. I think that's an important thing to keep in mind because there were people that Jesus encountered that thought they were pretty holy, didn't they? And uh, sometimes he had hard words for them, like you whitewash sepulchers. In our language, that's graves that have been taken care of and dressed up, but Underneath, are full of dead men's bones. He had uh, words to say to those who were, who were considered sinful uh, by the outcasts, and uh, we'll, we'll look at some of that tonight. Um, and so as, as Jesus t- talked to them, uh, many people were willing to change in response to him. Okay, so that's the Gospels. Just notice the distinction here. What is the Gospel? What's the gospel? That we can be redeemed, and that we can be redeemed in one specific way, which is how? Through Jesus, through his his life, his death, his resurrection, that because of that, uh, all men can be saved. I think we, if we were just, uh, we could... We could talk about this and add little details here and there, but I think the gospel really means that we are saved, that we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ, and as a result we have life in His name. We have eternal life. And not just eternal life as in we die and go to heaven, we have life now in Jesus. It's a, it's a transformation that takes place in us. We're born again and we're given spiritual life and everything about us Changes. We have a new perspective. And and you know when I say everything, I don't mean absolutely everything in every way. I'm saying that the core of who we are is transformed and that affects every part of our life. And so um, I wanted to talk tonight about the good news and the gospel and part of the gospels here. And of course we know that the gospel means good news and it is good news. And so I wanted to look at this passage, but before we do, I need to deal with a bogey, okay. Uh, And so we want to take a look at something here. Uh, This is from chapter 7, verse 53, and uh, this starts in verse uh, 53 of chapter 7 through uh, chapter 811. I'd just like you to notice something here, if I can find my pen. All right, so I want you to notice this part here. The most ancient Greek manuscripts do not include John 7, 53, through eight eleven. Now, don't let your heart be troubled. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna talk about this a little bit, uh, but we need to deal with this because if you're reading the ESV, the NIV, the NLT, um, probably there the NASB, almost any uh, modern translation, you're gonna see this something like this there. And I think it's important to talk about and then to come to some understanding of because. There's a possibility you could have a couple guys knock on your door and tell you about their religion, and one of the things that they may bring up is that our Bibles have been corrupted, and if uh, they're smart, they'll take us to passages like this and challenge us, challenge us on our scriptures, and so we better know how to respond to that, because uh, they, they, can, they can bring up evidence and have a point. So I wanted to mention this, I'm going to take that away. And uh, let's let's just read here uh, these verses, and we'll find out what we're talking about here. Verse uh, fifty three of chapter seven says, "Then they all they all went home. Okay, but Jesus went uh, to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery, and they made her stand before the group and and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, and the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and he started to write on the ground with his finger, and they kept on questioning him. And he straightened up and he said to them, Let Anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. At this, uh, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and he asked her, Woman, where are they? Uh, Has no one condemned you? No, sir, she said. And then, neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. All right, so let's talk about why it says this weird little thing right here. Uh, what are the Gospels again? Let's just talk about them for a second. What are the Gospels? They're, stor- they're stories about Jesus. And who t- who's telling the stories about Jesus? Jesus. The witnesses, okay? Eyewitnesses or eyewitness accounts. So if you think about um, who it is that would be uh, telling these gospels, you need to think about um, Matthew was a tax collector and he was one of Jesus' disciples, right? And who's John? The beloved, the brother of James, one of Jesus' disciples, right? And who is Luke? Luke? Doctor? Was he one of Jesus' disciples? No, but who did he probably know that gave him some clues about all of that? Who is it? He knew, he probably knew Peter, but he definitely knew Paul. And through Paul, somehow an introduction was made with Mary, because we hear him saying things like, Mary treasured up all these things in her heart. So, Luke's eyewitness accounts probably involved uh, interviews with different people, and some of them including Mary. So, uh, but we don't hold her in extra special high regard like we talked about last week. All right. So then we have Mark. Who is Mark? Anybody remember Mark? What's that? No, he's not a disciple of Luke. Is Mark mentioned anywhere in the scriptures? What's that? He ran with Paul, and Paul and Barnabas got into a great disagreement, right? Because of a certain man that was going with them and a young man who wanted to abandon mission, and uh, he and Mark, when they went on a, or excuse me, he and Barnabas, Paul and Barnabas, when they went on a future mission, he said, uh, Barnabas said, let's bring Mark along. And Paul's like, no, he abandoned us on the last mission. So he can't come. And they got, they got into a big argument and they split ways. And so Paul goes with Silas and Barnabas finds Mark and they go on their mission. And so there's a separation there. But later there's reconciliation between Paul and Mark because we find him saying at the end of his life in 2 Timothy chapter 4, uh, everyone has abandoned me. And then it says, uh, only Luke is with me. Bring Mark because he's profitable for ministry. And so, somehow, somewhere, uh, reconciliation has happened. But we do know that uh, uh, Mark is kind of like, takes on a sonship role with Peter. And so, whatever influence Mark has in his gospel, you probably got a lot of that from Peter. So, let me just suggest to you tonight that these are eyewitness accounts. Matthew, his own uh, notes, and whatever he's gotten from looking at Mark's gospel— Mark himself getting it is actually Peter's gospel, if you want to look at it that way. Okay. And then Luke is probably like Paul's gospel in a way, but he's done the interviews, and so he knows what's gone on there. And then John, of course, his own eyewitness account. And so these are eyewitness accounts of things that have taken place. And so they wrote these things down, and over time they got copied. And so I want to. I want to do a little diagram here for us on the on the screen, if that's all right. So what we have um, is we have, I'm just going to call these our autographs, okay? That A represents our autographs. These are the ones that are originally written. Uh, would it disappoint you terribly to know that we don't have these anymore? They've died out, okay? So I'm sorry to... Be the bearer of bad news. But we don't have the autographs anymore, probably because they were circulated and passed out. The paper wore out. And so one way they dealt with that is they, they made copies, not just one copy, but lots of copies, lots of little copies. Okay, these are copies. Okay, and as time goes by, more and more copies are made. Okay, so one of the things that has happened, we've got copies and then we've got copies of copies going out here. And one of the ways that we know what these autographs said is that we look at all the copies and compare them, almost like witnesses in a court of law. So when you bring the witnesses in, they all tell their story, and then you evaluate it, and you come to some kind of synthesis of what the truth is. Are you with me on that? Like we have the witnesses all telling their story. They, they may at times differ on little details, but we can know pretty much what happens when their when story lines up. Okay? So that's how we know what we have in the autographs. And the uh, one of the rules of um, textual criticism, which is the science of understanding these things, is that you compare and you give weight to whatever the oldest manuscripts are. All right. So if they're older, they get more value in the process because they figure that over time distortions can happen with copies of copies. All right. So somewhere along the line... Um, Sometimes people made these little scribal errors, and I hope it won't trouble you to know this. I'm going to tell you that at first, it bothered me that this book that we have didn't just drop out of heaven into our laps. That bothered me a whole bunch. And then as I began to find out how this works, how it works that they translate for us, it actually made my confidence in the Bible stronger than ever before, because I realized There's a lot of work that goes into this, and there's a lot of evidence for this, okay? So I want to go through this, and if in a moment you have some questions, we'll deal with that. But I'm trying to get a bogey out of the way so that we can really look at the text and hear what God has to say from it, all right? So there are sometimes little errors in these, and that usually has to do with uh, copy mistakes. Usually there's spelling errors or some kind of punctuation errors that find their way in there, or as a... Um, as a copyist, this is what people did all day long before the printing press, is they copied one document by hand to another document by hand, all day long. Would you like that job? So they were doing that, and what they would do sometimes is they would, in their mind, they would skip a line as they go from looking at what they're copying to the next line and come back. They might skip a line, but we can see where all those are, okay? Because when it comes to these copies... We have over 5,000 New Testament manuscripts. Okay? That's a lot of witnesses. Okay? And then, in addition to these 5,000 complete Greek manuscripts, we also have 25,000 other fragments and manuscripts that include different languages. I won't, I'll tell you, with hands down, there is not another ancient document that has more um, source authority than the Bible does. You can't find it Um, when you're talking about like the Iliad and the Odyssey or the Aeneid or, or any other ancient writing. We have nothing like this. There's nothing that's been more historically attested than the Bible in terms of document. So we can go back and we can figure out as we compare all of these, what it is that we should have in our Bible. And I think because as we compare these, we can get really close to what this is. And what scholars tell us is in these copies right here. Okay? That they're 98%, there's 98% agreement between them. Okay? That's pretty good, don't you think? And all of the areas in which you find minor disagreements, nothing changes anything of doctrine. Okay? So this is how the sausage is made, if you want to say that, in terms of producing translations. One of the things you'll hear from cult members who will come to the door and say things like, well, Um, what you have is a distortion because what happened is you have the autographs here. I, I know this is terribly edifying, but it does help. It is good to know. And then they think that we've got copies, and then we've got copies of copies, and every generation has a new copy of a copy, and there gets to be distortion. But what they don't understand is that in our translations, the translations try to go back to the very oldest and give weight to that. So we're not just distorting it as we copy again and again. We find out what the problems are in the later copies, and we go back to the earliest ones and try to figure out exactly what that said. So this is kind of a nerdy thing, but sometimes what would happen is a scribe would come along, and they would put in a note. Okay, Let's, uh, for example, we we came across this in John chapter 5, Okay, when it says about the the man who was waiting to go into the pool. There's a little, there's a little statement in, in chapter 5, verse 4, that says that an angel would come down and stir the water. Our oldest manuscripts don't have that. And so what probably happened is somebody knew of some kind of tradition, as they copied it, they put this in the text, the angel, angel came down. Okay. And then next to it, they would have something like a little dagger or an asterisk, and that would tell us that that was a textual note for clarification. And somehow, at some point, some of those things found their way into a text, and it got moved along in the tradition. And so now that we have um, an understanding of some of the older te- the older manuscripts, we can go back and we can realize maybe that wasn't there. It doesn't change anything. I mean, it doesn't change who Jesus is. The fact that there was an angel or not an angel that came down and stirred the waters. Do you agree? Does it change salvation? It Doesn't change salvation. It doesn't change what. Uh, doesn't change anything about the Trinity. It doesn't change anything. In fact, these little things that sometimes become such a big deal and they divide churches, really don't change anything regarding our biblical faith. Okay. Now we, we might want to argue on the minor details of Scripture, but they don't. They don't really change a whole lot in terms of what we believe about Jesus. And so some of these things got. Uh, got added into the text, but we find out we've got older ones. So here's something else that we might want to consider. And this is a a diagram of history here. We have the apostolic church. That's the one with uh, the original guys, the apostles. Okay, And then in time, uh, of course, this becomes kind of like uh, the Catholic church or it's just the church because we didn't make distinction. And then somewhere in the 11th century, there was a break in the church, a church split. Can you believe that? Church splits are not anything new. And you have the Eastern Church. And you have the Western Church. And the Eastern Church continued to use Greek, Greek manuscripts, Greek, Coptic, which is um, an Egyptian language, Syriac, which is Aramaic, like Aramaic. Okay, And the Western church used what language, do you think? Latin. Okay, So we started to find that we moved away from the Greek manuscripts into the Latin. Meanwhile, the Eastern church, which we might call the Orthodox church, Russian, Greek, Latvian, whatever, Orthodox part of the Eastern church, they continued to use Greek manuscripts, and so many of the Greek manuscripts they have are much older. So, in the Western Church, what happens over here is that they're using Latin, and uh, somewhere around uh, the f- the 1500s uh, a new is in the 1400s actually a new thing began to develop uh, in Europe, which is called the the Renaissance. Anybody know what the Renaissance means? Rebirth right? And what people did is they went back to the classics. So this started a whole trend, and people started to say, hey, we should really do that with our Bibles. So one of the guys that uh, was responsible for that was a guy named Erasmus. And uh, he was Catholic, but he was a Catholic humanist. And he thought, we need to get back. We need to get back to the Greek manuscripts and find out what they said because we've been using, these, we've been using the Vulgate for about 1,000 years now, and we need to find out how this really compares so, everybody was mad because they started to translate the scriptures back into Greek and then Greek into the vernacular languages. So, this isn't anything new. And when he translates his Greek text, he only uses about half a dozen, maybe eight Greek manuscripts. Okay, and they're of a particular kind. So, they're not the oldest manuscripts, but they're of a particular kind. I, I know this, this might be a, a difficult thing on a hot Wednesday night, but just follow me for a few moments. All right, so, and they're fairly late, so what happens is later on, what, what what happens is he uses his manuscripts to develop what's known as the received text, and the received text is the basis for the King James Bible. The King James Bible has done wonders through our world. It really has. How many grew up reading the King James? That's your Bible of choice, maybe when you're growing up, or the verses you memorized are in the KJV. And it's a good Bible translation, and it changed the world. It really did. But in later times, what happens is people begin to become aware of these manuscripts, and they said, these are much older. We ought to compare what we have with this right here. And so they started to bring in some of the older ones, and they say, hey, these don't exactly match up. There are some places where there are things that are in these Latin or newer Greek manuscripts that we have that aren't in these. And so it's little things. The angels stirring the water. And this is one place in John chapter 7 verse 53 where in our oldest manuscripts, we don't have them. They're somewhere, oldest manuscripts are somewhere around the 3rd, 4th, and 5th centuries. Okay. So, uh, in addition to that, we found out that this passage, John uh, chapter 7, sorry, my writing's messy, 53 through 8. 11 it's not in the earliest manuscripts we have and it's also not in the writings of any of the apostolic fathers so these are guys that after the apostles died they wrote commentaries and they led the church so I don't have any quotes of, of this passage right here so what that tells us is that maybe John didn't write it in his gospel but that doesn 't mean that it 's not authentic, and I want to make that very clear because i I, don't, I feel that you could be getting mad at me i 'm not trying to take the Bible away from you i 'm not I think that it 's authentic i just I think the evidence points to the fact that it wasn 't in John and uh, there are several reasons for that. Let me uh, mention some of those one uh, is the copies that we have okay as i said there 's ninety eight percent agreement there 's no change in doctrine um, and then uh, one of the other things is that the apostolic fathers don't have it. And then one of the things that's mentioned in this passage in verse, oh, verse 3. Look at chapter 8, verse 3. It says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees, bride and woman, caught in adultery. If... This is authentic to John. This is the only place in John he ever uses scribes or teachers of the law. He never uses that word. He always talks about the Pharisees, but never the teachers of the law. So this would be kind of an outlier. So for that reason, some of our best Greek scholars, and they're not, they're not liberals trying to tear down our Bible. These are people who really believe the word of God. They're telling us that maybe this wasn't in John, but most of the best of them will tell you we believe that this is a tradition about Jesus, That's legitimate. We just don't think it's there because it ends up in different place. In fact, uh, in one of our manuscripts, it ends up in a place in Luke. Can you can you believe that? So that's kind of a strange thing. Okay. So concerning this story, um, well, let me back up here. Uh, As as I said, it might trouble you to hear me say this, and it did me at first. And as I said, I would have liked for this whole thing to just dropped out of heaven. But when I realize the process, um, we have the voice of many witnesses. And if a cult member comes to your door and knocks on it and says, listen, uh, your Bible is full of errors, and they point out this passage, you can say, I know about that, but we have really good reasons to believe everything that's in the Bible. We have good reasons to believe it. Despite the fact that this is there, there's good reasons to believe it. I don't want you to be caught off guard by that, because they can bring things like that up. Um, so concerning this story, I, I just say one ob- objection uh, to this is you're taking away from the Bible. Okay? When if we talk about this here and we say, maybe this wasn't legitimate to John, but it's still a true story about Jesus, some people say, Well, you're taking away from the Bible. And I would just encourage you to think about it from John's perspective. If he wrote this gospel, and it wasn't in there, and he read what we have, and it's in there, he's going to go, you've added to the Bible. Do you understand what I mean by that? That the prohibition is not just against adding or taking away, it's against adding to. So we have to be careful about that. So what does all of this mean? Uh, It means that it's probably not part of John's gospel, but it doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And the way that most uh, Bible scholars deal with this is they make it clear so that we know, I want to be transparent just as they did, that maybe this wasn't exactly here in John, but there's good reasons to believe it's true. And so they tell us that, and then they begin to deal with it. They begin to deal with the passage. Uh, And as I said a moment ago, none of this is really edifying to us as believers to know, but it's good to know in case the question comes up. And if you want a fair and balanced view of all of this, you can read James White's book, The King James Controversy, Can We Trust Modern Bible Translations? Um, And maybe for some of you tonight, you've had enough already. So let's look at the verses, shall we? All right. The usual approach, as I said, is to talk about that and then to deal with it. All right. Let's look here at our story once again. If uh, it's true that this didn't happen right here in John, then we don't really have a historical context for this, except that it happens in the temple. It happens as Jesus is teaching the people, and uh, we can find out some things about Jesus through it. First thing I'd like to mention is Jesus had opposition from the religious leaders. Are you with me? Is that true? That's true, isn't it? Uh, we see that from John, that it's true. He had opposition from religious leaders. Then the second thing I'd like to point out here, and and I'd like you to notice that it, it shows that he has opposition from the religious leaders because they're bringing this woman caught in the act of adultery to him in order to trap him. They're not really wanting justice to be served. They're not really wanting to fulfill the law. They're wanting to catch Jesus in a trap because they don't like him. He has opposition. And as often happens is they imagine that there's one of two choices, that they're going to trap Jesus into. They're going to catch him on one of two horns, okay? So they present him with two uh, with with an option here, and they know that the conclusion is either he's going to let this lady go, and it's going to look like he's uh, diminishing the law of Moses, or he's going to condemn her to death, and he's going to offend the the Roman governor and the Sanhedrin who are responsible for making decisions like that. In either case, Jesus, they think is in dangerous territory. This reminds us a little bit, it does me anyway, of uh, the time they tried to chap Jesus through the use of the coin and and taxes. What did they say to Jesus? Should we pay taxes to Rome or not? Right? And what did Jesus say? Yeah, bring, bring me a coin. And he said, whose image is on this? Whose image was on the coin? Huh? Caesar's image. And what did, he, what did Jesus say? It was so genius. Give to Caesar what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. Whose image is on us? It's ima- we're in the image of God, right? We're created in the image of God. So I think the suggestion Jesus is making here, you can give Caesar all the money, give all of yourself to God. Give yourselves to God. And so he answers in a way that's a third option. Do you see that? They had imagined that they had him caught between two things. And he always seems to find that they're not thinking on the right level if they think they can trap him in either one of those things. This is just like Jesus to, to, to realize or to show that man's thinking is futile because we imagine that there's one of two options. Anytime we get in trouble, we think there's... It's going to be this or it's going to be this. And isn't he a way maker? Like uh, the the Israelites as they're fleeing from the Egyptians and they come to the edge of the Red Sea. And like there's nowhere to go. We can go back towards the Egyptians. We could maybe go this way, but there's no other way to go. And he opens up a way. And that's what he does right here is he shows that there's something else. But Jesus reacts in a way that's different from... what's expected here they bring this woman and stand her before him in that place Jesus shows unusual grace as uh, he often does Um, can you think of any place where Jesus was very harsh the money changers okay what any anything else Okay. The scolding of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What about when he says his woes, woe to you, and he's like, if these things had happened in Tyre, Sidon, they would have repented long ago. Woe to you, Capernaum. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If uh, what had been done in you had uh, had been done in these other cities, Sodom and Gomorrah, they would have repented long ago. It will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for you because you've rejected the only hope of life. So he said hard things. He's not against saying hard things, but we often find him, especially in personal conversations, showing extreme mercy, and that's what he does here. I'd like you to notice, and we'll go through this in just a moment, but Jesus was the only one who could have really condemned this lady, and he chose not to. And I'd like you to notice that Jesus told her to stop sinning at the end. And that mercy makes demands of people. Mercy makes demands. You know, it's not just a matter of um, this cheap and easy grace. Mercy and grace call for us to stop sinning. They do. So when he extends his mercy, the, the story doesn't stop there. So there are details in the story we shouldn't try to make too much of in light of what we know. But... But I will. I would love to explore it. Isn't it interesting to kind of speculate? And there's been a lot of speculation on this. We don't know, for example, what Jesus was writing in the dirt. Okay? They brought her from the place where she had apparently been caught in the act of adultery. They said they brought her and they stood her in her shame before them. And Jesus is there teaching. They're standing, or the accusers are standing around they're Pharisees, they're teachers of the law, people who know the scriptures well. And uh, they asked Jesus a question, the law of Moses, they said. Uh, this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the law of Moses. It commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? And they were using this question to trap him in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down, and he started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, meaning that the questions went on, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up, and he said to them, Let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And again, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. What was Jesus writing on the ground? Their sins? Do we know that for sure? No, we don't. But it's a good, it's a good choice. Mrs. Robinson—they're <laughs> the names of the ladies that these guys had been messing around with, and secret—that's <laughs> a good, that's a good one. All right, that, that's actually a really good one because there's a possibility for that. Anybody have any other guesses? Okay, how about um, this is a church tradition that goes. As far back, maybe as uh, as this this portion appears in John, that there that Jesus was writing down Jeremiah seventeen thirteen. Listen to what it says: it "Says Lord, you're the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Those who forsake you will be written in the dust. What if He's writing their names? Ooh." They would have remembered this passage because they knew their Bibles back and forward. They would have known exactly what that meant. If he was writing their names in the dust, that would have had quite a, you know. T.W. Manson uh, said Jesus was imitating the practice of Roman magistrates who first wrote their sentence and then read it. Okay, so he would have written down the sentence and then read it out, um, I don't find a lot of uh, credibility to that. J. Duncan M. Darrett, I guess he's got two middle names or three. Uh, He thinks that Jesus was writing Exodus 23.1, do not spread false reports, do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. And this would be hypothesizing that the accusers could have prevented the adultery, but they failed to do so in a disgusting conspiracy that was aimed at embarrassing Jesus. So they knew it was going to happen. This is what this guy says. And they didn't stop it from happening. Instead, they waited for it to happen, caught her in the act, and brought her out in order to test Jesus, which was a terrible thing to do. Okay? And it violated Exodus 23. Some people think that what Jesus wrote was incidental. It doesn't matter. He he didn't directly it didn't directly have to do with the actions which took place, which we don't know what he wrote. So maybe that was the case that he was writing something to teach the people that he was talking to and acting sort of uh, keeping a little bit of a distance between him and the situation that was developing, keeping it calm, like acting nonchalant. I'm going to go about my business as this drama plays out. Maybe I don't know. Um, Some people think that he wrote the sins of the accusers on the ground. Adultery. uh, Covetousness. Whatever else it might have been. He wrote the sins of the accusers on the ground and they would have recognized that. And another suggestion is Jesus was writing the law on the ground. And this particular verse from Exodus 20. This is in the Ten Commandments. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Can you imagine? Now think about this. They've brought this woman to stand before him because she's caught in the act of adultery and he writes down you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and he shows them if this is the case that they're guilty of breaking the Ten Commandments too. I don't know what it was I really like the suggestion that maybe um, maybe he was writing names of people uh, that they had sinned with Whatever the case was, we know that when Jesus said, let him that's without sin cast the first stone, they left from the oldest to the youngest. They left from the oldest to the youngest. He bent down, and they kept on questioning him. He answers, and uh, those who heard him begin to go away one at a time. And it says that from the oldest to the youngest. And, and this is something kind of interesting is if you have a chance to speak in a setting like that, like a either a court case or a public setting, the opportunity to speak always goes from the oldest to the youngest. So age gets you priority in terms of when you get to speak. And so what that means is they went away silent. Okay. Kind of fascinating, isn't it? What Jesus said is clear enough they're using this as a trap and uh you know that uh, scripture does say in deuteronomy thirteen nine you must certainly put them to death your hand must be the first in putting them to death if you're a witness and then the hands of the people deuteronomy seventeen seven says something like that so whoever caught this woman in adultery they're the they're the person that should be starting to stone her when it's time but they ask Jesus what he thinks and he says if you're Without sin, you can cast the first stone. This doesn't mean any sin, as if as as if the only time that you could ever um, condemn somebody in a court of law was if you'd never sinned. Because who could ever sit in judgment at any time in a court of law? If it only required those that it only you could only do that if you were sinless. Who could do that? Nobody. So this isn't dealing with that. Jesus is dealing something more like the guilty of this particular sin. Okay, one of the Bible scholars, I think this is D.A. Carson, says, as in many societies around the world, so here when it comes to sexual sins, the woman was much more likely to be in legal and social jeopardy than her paramour. The man could, be, uh, could lead a respectable life while masking the same sexual sins. With a knowing wink, Jesus simple uh, condition without calling in, he calls in without calling into question the Mosaic code cuts through the double standard and drives hard to reach the conscience, so he won 't let the double standard remain and I find this i 've even heard this from people before that it's one rule for men and it's a different rule for women, and I want to tell you that 's not biblical. Okay, Jesus presses the issue on this. He will not let the the double standard remain. Many in Jesus' day, they had that different standard for adultery for men than for women. If a woman married and then divorced and then married someone else, in Jesus' day, it was considered adultery against her former husband. But the husband was thought to be allowed to marry again and again as long as it wasn't to somebody else's wife or ex-wife. So they could marry. But the woman couldn't marry. And so there's a double standard. Do you see that? If that's the case, it's a double standard. And Jesus cuts right through that. And he shows that the same rule applies to men and women. He does this. And I don't, I don't know that we catch this, but this is particularly striking to the Israelite who heard this in Mark chapter 10, verse 11 and 12. Jesus said, anyone who divorces his wife and marries another, Woman commits adultery against her. Do you hear that? Anyone who uh, divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. So now what he's saying is that there is adultery against the wife. That never would have been uh, brought into consideration. So what this story reinforces tonight is Jesus was unpopular with many Pharisees. Uh, because the religious ideas and power were threatened by the true understanding of God's laws. So the Pharisees tried to catch him in a contradiction, and this happened with taxes, it happened with law-keeping, but Jesus being co-equal with the Father and the Spirit, and there at the giving of the law, he was the one that could interpret the law, and so it was okay for him, it was right for him even to dismiss her and to say that, I don't condemn you, I don't condemn you either. Here's the other thing that this uh, story tells us is that Jesus came for the unrighteous. Do you know that? He wasn't coming to condemn the world. Remember John 3.16? Anybody remember that little verse back there? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever uh, believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then what does John 3.17 say? He did not come to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. His desire wasn't to condemn. Does that mean there is no condemnation? No. It means there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. But in other places, Jesus says those who don't believe in the son stand condemned already. His point wasn't to condemn. His coming wasn't for condemnation. He will judge at a later time. All judgment rests on Jesus. Everyone will stand before him and be judged. But, on his first mission, it wasn't a mission of judgment. It was a mission of mercy. And so he came to, to offer forgiveness and restoration of relationship. He came for the unrighteous. Those too proud to recognize their need for him refused to come to him and to be saved. They cut themselves off from the only true source of righteousness. Righteousness. And, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether, I mean, it does in one sense. But this woman caught in adultery, Jesus is offering her forgiveness. But these other guys that are standing in opposition to Jesus, they're guilty of self-righteousness. So I ask you, which sin is worse? And I'm not asking for an answer, but I just want us to think about this. Um, I heard this... uh, essay this week by C.S. Lewis, and he quoted from uh, William Law, and I thought this was really interesting. I wanted to share it. William Law, it was an English writer who wrote uh, A Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life. He said, If you have not chosen the kingdom of God, it will make in the end no difference what you've chosen instead. Listen, if you haven't chosen the kingdom of God, It will make no difference what you've chosen instead. To which C.S. Lewis says this. Listen closely. He says, those are hard words to take. Will it really make no difference whether it was women or patriotism, cocaine or art, whiskey or a seat in the cabinet, money or science? Will it make no difference if I've chosen that instead of the gospel? Because we can weigh those things out. Some things are socially good or better. And some things are socially worse, right? But what William Law is saying, and I think, I think Jesus would echo this, will it matter even if we've chosen something good instead of the kingdom of God? So he goes on to say, well, surely no difference that matters. This is C.S. Lewis. We, we shall have missed the end for which we were formed and rejected the only thing that satisfies does it matter to a man dying in a desert by which cho- choice of route he missed the only well? So here he's offering forgiveness to the unrighteous. And many times those who consider themselves righteous stand within touching distance of what they really need, but they reject him. and They've chosen instead their own righteousness rather than Jesus Jesus seeks the forgiveness of sins in his uh, mission, not the punishment for sins. That will come later. And this is consistent with God in the Old Testament, Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. He passed by, God passed by in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not hold the guilty or he does not let the guilty go unpunished what this is saying is that even when we look at the old testament we see what we think of as a vindictive god his first response was not judgment he was full of compassion and abounding in love slow slow to anger have you ever met somebody or maybe this is true of you somebody who's not slow to anger like when you're sitting at a stoplight and it turns green and the person in front of you doesn't go and you're on the horn in a New York minute angry yelling we forget that there are people in those cars that Jesus loves but i think about i think about how all of that um plays out what is Jesus doing they're trying to get him to condemn this woman and he refuses to do so on their term. He offers her instead mercy. Okay, we might have a problem a little bit with uh, the idea that Jesus doesn't condemn her here when she's obviously guilty of sin. And by the way, I think that what we can see in this passage is when Jesus says, go now and leave your life of sin in verse 11, that he acknowledges that she is a sin, sinful woman, that she's sinful. He's not skirting over the sin. He's not acting as if it doesn't exist. He's offering her mercy. Are you are you with me on that? That this is not Jesus saying sin doesn't matter. It's not important. It doesn't hurt anyone. He's not saying anything like that. What he's saying here instead is this is your chance to make a break with the life of sin and to really live for God. He's offering her that. Will she choose that or not? We don't know. Because uh there's some interesting things here, but he says, Where are your accusers? Where are those that condemn you? And uh is there anyone left? And she's like, I, I don't there's no one, my lord, and uh he says, I don't condemn you either. Here's the interesting thing about the word condemn. It's the it's the word uh in Greek krino. That's an R. Crino. okay, and uh, this word can mean six different things. It can mean to make a selection, okay? I'm going to choose this donut that's blueberry over that donut that's cherry. I've just made a decision, krino, okay? So there's one example of it. Another uh, use of this is to uh, express an opinion based on the wrong kind of criteria, this is when we judge a book by its cover. We've made a we've made a judgment on what that book is like based on the wrong kind of criteria. Because what we really want to know is this a good book? But you can't tell that all the time by the cover, can you? And it's the same way with people. We might look at the outside of them and make a snap judgment. And so when we do that, this word crino is used there for making that kind of judgment. So now you can see that already we're into difficulty because it's the same word that's used between choosing between donuts. And it's the same word that is used when we judge somebody by outward appearances alone. And then a third use of crino is to criticize or to find fault. This is to have what we might call a critical spirit, although that's not necessarily in the Bible, critical spirit. But uh, surely the Bible describes people who are like that, right? We're always criticizing everyone else and everything is fault-finding. And so crino is used for that kind of thing, where we're criticizing or finding fault. You can also have a fourth definition, fourth uh, use, which is to reach a decision based on facts. This isn't negative or positive. This is neutral. We look at the facts, and maybe as we're examining where we want to live and we think about um, maybe we want to live in Alaska. Okay, the winters are a little bit cold, and there's a lot of snow, but summers are really great. And I've always liked the snow, and I've always liked the mountains, and uh, I've always liked the summer, and I like the things that Alaska has offered. I'm going to live there. That's Crino. We've we've made a decision based on some facts. And a fifth use is to decide guilt through judicial process. So when the judge uh, slams his hammer down and declares maybe the verdict this is also Crino, So you can see where we're in difficulty, and the Bible says in one place not to judge, and in another place that we ought to judge, we've got to weigh through all these different nuances of what this means. You understand that we are, as Christians, not called to not judge in every way. There's a specific way in which we're called to not judge. And uh, there are other times that we're called to, to judge. Judge between yourselves, the Bible says, in one place. So uh, it's a very nuanced thing, and we have to be specific about it. And because we weren't specific, we've, en- we've ended up in a culture where nobody can make any kind of statement of fact about anything without somebody getting offended about it and say, You're judgmental. Well, Christian, everybody's judgmental. And when we're not, it leads us to problems. We need to be discerning and have judgment in certain areas understand? I mean, if your son or daughter is going to marry somebody and that guy's a thug and there's another guy over here, it's the daughter that's going to marry the, the guy. If one's a thug and another guy is a decent young man, is it, are you being judgmental to say you ought to marry the nice guy? Or your son? Come on. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's wise to make judgments based on those kinds of things. It's another thing to pass condemnation upon somebody and say, you're beyond the saving reach of God. That's wrong. Okay, And then um, another use of crino is to see that justice is done. Okay, and so when Jesus says that I'm not going to condemn you, he's not passing sentence upon her. He's not judging her in that way. He's not passing a sentence. Upon her for her sin. He says instead. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. Don't leave your life of sin. This isn't just don't do that sin. But he's now expanded this to say leave the life of sin behind. I'm not suggesting to you that this woman if she follows Jesus advice will never ever sin again. It's talking about the habit. The sinful habit. Leave those things behind. Specifically as in mine. Quit getting into bed with married men, right? That's one of the things, since your husband don't do that anymore. So adultery is probably the main thing at issue here, but he's really calling her to a life of devotion. Here's what's fascinating is you don't hear anything necessarily about direct repentance, like this woman has ever said she's sorry. We don't hear that in this story. We also don't hear about forgiveness here, like you're forgiven, Go and sin no more. It's just stop sinning. Stop sinning. And what I take from that is that maybe this, uh, this woman isn't at a place where that could happen. Maybe that part of the story was an important detail to include. Uh, maybe it was assumed that she w- was forgiven. I don't know exactly. But I do know that he charged her not to live in sin anymore. Here's the principles I take from this. First, sin is serious. And God thinks it's serious. And it's serious enough for Jesus to come and to die for. And it's serious enough for him to say to this woman, stop sinning. Okay, So are we in agreement with that, that sin is serious, that this isn't in any way Jesus saying to us, what you're doing isn't that big a deal, just try to be better. Are we in agreement with that? This is him saying, Stop sinning. Okay, you dodged a bullet here, but it's time for this to stop. How many times in our lives has God rescued us from our own sinfulness, and and now He says to us, "Now you've got a fresh start. Let's uh, do the right thing." Okay, the second thing I would re- I would see from this passage is that all people are unrighteous. Let him that's without sin cast the first stone all right you want to cast stones okay whoever's sinless here you can do it they couldn't i think what they're afraid of honestly jesus was going to start naming names if they went if they went through with this that he was going to start naming names cuz he knew their he knew their stuff but all of them had to leave from the oldest to the youngest the accuser even they had to leave and and by the way, I didn't mention this earlier, I should have, where was the guy? Adultery is not something that, I know that you can commit the principle of adultery by yourself in thinking, but what she's caught in is not something you can do by yourself in isolation. Somebody else needed to be there. Where did he go? Did he get away? Did the guys let him off the hook because... It wasn't useful to their purposes. Did they entrap this lady? Where was he? I don't know. Maybe it's too late to consider all that. But what we do see here, all people are unrighteous. The only one that's capable of really pronouncing judgment according to Jesus' standard is Him, Jesus himself. Who's the only one that's sinless in that whole setting? It's Jesus, Right? Neither do I condemn you. The sinless one offers grace. And then that's the final thing is I'd like to point out that mercy, mercy is real. Mercy is real, and God extends that to us, and we see that from this story, that mercy is real. He offers mercy. I don't know the picture that you've got of what God and his nature is like, but we ho- we heard a lot of holiness preaching growing up and don't do this and wearing that kind of clothes are bad, and if you have that particular haircut, that's that's bad too, and you can't be close to God and have that have your hair growing over your ears <laughs> if you're a boy and, and things like that. And you shouldn't wear shorts if you're a boy because the girls will lust over your legs and all of that. Things like that, really. And, and, and I, people took it very serious. And I think, sadly, the pendulum has swung completely the other way where nothing's wrong anymore and we just think that everything's okay. But I think there's a healthy balance in this to understand. When, when you grow up in a situation like that, you think that God is not merciful. He's looking for opportunities to judge you. And I don't think that's the case. I think he's looking for opportunities to save you. I think he's looking for opportunities to redeem us, to forgive us. So often we don't. And the last resort when we reject mercy and grace is that God has to judge. God has to discipline. He has to ultimately condemn. We stand condemned in our sins, not because that's what he wants, he desires repentance and life. He takes no delight. The scripture says it in the Old Testament, believe it or not. He takes no delight in the death of the wicked. God doesn't enjoy it at all. Sometimes he sees it as necessary, but there's no joy in it for him. He wants to save. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so he offers grace to us, and we see that here. I, This is an extreme case. Probably none of us can think of what that would look like, the shame that would come upon this woman having been brought into that setting, standing before the Holy One of God. I think his presence must emanate holiness in such a way that people felt the conviction just standing near him. They've come into his presence, and she feels a shame, and their intention is to shame Jesus. They put shame on her. They're trying to shame Jesus make him look ashamed. And they go away ashamed. And Jesus stands there in his holiness and righteousness, and she stands there with a new opportunity to live right. This is the beauty of our Savior, isn't it? And we have a beautiful Savior who offers us redemption, and he doesn't label us by our old labels. He calls us by new names, and he gives us a new nature. And he calls us to live for him in a higher and better way in such a way that if we didn't know our own past, people wouldn't be able to identify us according to it. I know people that if they stand so beautiful in God now, you would never guess what they were like before. Do you know people like that? God has transformed them. They're different. They're beautiful because of what God has done. So I've gone beyond my time. Thanks for your gracious attention tonight. Yes. Do you have a question? Oh, she's not feeling good? Her heart. Okay. All right, let's pray for Georgia. Thanks for mentioning that. Hey, if you do have any questions afterwards, uh, if you'll come talk to me, that'd be fine. So, Father, thank you that we can call upon your name tonight. We ask for your touch on Georgia. God, whatever is going on there, would you minister to her and would you touch and heal her? And we're praying for relief for her body. Minister, we pray tonight to, to Janie as well, where she's at, Lord. And we thank you for your mercy and grace. And we pray that you help us to see the beauty of what it means to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here. Uh, have a wonderful night. Enjoy this weather.